Lydia Gall from Hungary, who's a researcher at Human Rights Watch who focuses on Hungary, Poland, and some of the Western Balkans, if I understand correctly. Then Aaron McLaughlin, to my right, is the CNN correspondent who's been covering Brexit for the last three years since it happened in Brussels and representing a Brussels perspective on things more than the British perspective on things, from what I understand. Although I've covered both, but I'm just Covered both. So what I would suggest is that Aaron start the discussion by orienting people about what Brexit is, why it happened, and the different historical chapters involving the different political leaders who've been associated with this strange thing going on in one of the world's oldest and greatest democracies that now looks like a circus. <laughs> so please, Aaron. Okay, so essentially I think that the story of Brexit can be looked at in terms of chapters. Chapter one being the David Cameron uh, end of things. The decision to have a, a referendum to begin with, the fateful decision uh, from his standpoint of view because it cost him his political career to pose a very simple question to the British public, do you want to be a, a member of the European Union? And the answer to that question was no, by a very slim major majority, 52% to 48%. It cost him, as I said, his political career. He stepped down. There's a number of lessons to be learned from David Cameron, labeled by the President of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, as a great destroyer of modern times. The current chapter that the UK is going through is the Theresa May chapter. She took the helm. No one really knew at that point what Brexit meant. There were a number of different conflicting reasons why people in the United Kingdom chose to leave the European Union. And she made a number of mistakes. And I think that the, the story of her premiership uh, can be viewed through the prism of the lesson of what happens to a country, to a people, to an electorate, when its leadership fails to recognize reality. And, and from the onset, she actually sort of just rushed to trigger uh, Article 50, which is one of the big cards at that point that the UK had to play. And, and in doing so, she gave Brussels a tremendous advantage in terms of the negotiations because you had a disoriented, fragmented United Kingdom going through a process that then was largely determined by the EU treaty, Article 50, being in favor of the EU. Uh, to compound things, she called a general election and basically lost, leaving her with a minority government. So suddenly you have this question that they're still struggling to answer, even to this day, and she, with a minority government, needed to implement it. It was a toxic situation, and as we saw, her crying on the steps of Downing Street cost her her political career. Now the UK is entering another chapter of Brexit, likely to be the Boris Johnson chapter, and it's arguably the most dangerous, the most fraught with problems, um, a, a potentially chaotic and dark chapter, the darkest chapter of Brexit so far. So that's sort of where we stand in terms of how this has played out up until this point from uh, the view of the different prime ministers who've been at the helm uh, of Brexit. So we keep hearing about a no deal Brexit, right? And other people are talking about the possibility of a second referendum. And there's something in between, according to other people, of negotiated withdrawal, which will keep some agreements in place, which will have favorable trade uh, arrangements. 
what's going on? What does this mean? What is the dark scenario? What's the worst case scenario, the no Brexit? And what do you think is the best case scenario now? What about likelihood, the likelihood of either one, according to what's uh, happening? Well, a no deal scenario is or was seen at one point by the majority of the United Kingdom as the worst case scenario. It's the equivalent to the UK, the fifth largest economy in the world, effectively just falling off a cliff. Keep in mind that the UK has been a member of the EU for 40 years. Their regulatory structures, their laws, how they get business done, their trade relationships are all entwined with the European Union. As things stand now, should there not be a deal or should the UK leave without a deal? As of October 31st, effectively, the United Kingdom detaches itself from the EU and enters what many have projected uh, within the government and outside think tanks, an economic freefall, but also a political freefall given the situation uh, with the Northern Ireland uh, border potential um, violence as well that could ensue there. Also, many are predicting that the whole of the UK will, would break up as a result of a, a no-deal Brexit because you have, say, Scotland, which didn't vote to leave in the first place. I've been up to Scotland. They are absolutely furious and, and they want another referendum themselves uh, to leave the UK. Um, Can you say what the backstop is? Th this term, the backstop, everyone's saying this in Parliament all the time, oh, there's got to be a backstop. What is the backstop? Most people don't know what it is and what it's supposed to cause so or prevent. Es essentially, the backstop was a creation of the EU that the UK, Theresa May, has also signed on to that would ensure the Good Friday Agreement remains untouched and in place for the most part. Can you say what the Good Friday Agreement is? The, agreement, so the, the Good Friday Agreement preserves peace uh, on the island of Ireland. The interesting thing about Brexit is that Many Brexiteers pushed this idea on the United Kingdom so that it would be able to take back control of its borders. It would be able to control freedom of movement. The, the, the problem with that is that you have a border, the, the border uh, on the island of Ireland between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland that no one really wants to exist. It, it can't be there. There can be no border infrastructure on the island of Ireland. What happens if you leave, though, under WTO trading rules and from the standpoint of the EU trying to pr preserve the single market, you absolutely need a border there, which jeopardizes essentially a very fragile political situation there uh, on the island of Ireland. Uh, I've been to Belfast. Um, how many decades later, after the Good Friday Agreement was signed, there's, it is still fraught with tension. It could still erupt in violence at any point in time. So the EU is looking at this situation and said, look it, we need a backstop. In the event that we can't sign a future trade deal, we need something that's going to ensure that there's no border. And the way they've done that is come up with a backstop that would leave Northern Ireland within the customs union and the single market in the event that the UK brexits completely and decides on a future relationship that would require a border. So that's essentially what the backstop is. Theresa May wanted a, a backstop for the whole of the UK because she saw tremendous advantage in having the UK have tariff-free access to the single market in the form of a customs union um, and yet also be able to leverage the UK's services. So. The problem there, though, is that she infuriated any number of Brexiteers who want to be able to sign their own trade agreements, which they're not going to be able to do if they sign up for a customs union as a backstop. That's the default position for the future relationship going forward. It's incredibly complicated subject. I've been to Belfast. I've talked to people on the streets there. People there don't even quite 
haven't quite understood what the backstop is, and, and that's a, also a, a huge messaging problem for Theresa May. It's part of the reason why she wasn't able to sell this deal, because she wasn't able to convince people inside the UK, namely MPs, who would have passed this deal, that this was really in the UK's best interest. So this is a, a big, big deal. The Good Friday Agreement, 1998, basically ended a civil war between the Irish, between Irish in Northern Ireland and, and Southern Ireland, because the IRA was mostly based in Southern Ireland, although they had cells in the North. So imagine a civil conflict where people are blowing people up in pubs, they're shooting soldiers from the UK who are in Northern Ireland, they're seen as occupying the island called Ireland. And after many, many years, people who've been extremists agree to disarm. That doesn't happen very often. And they agreed also to let prisoners go who were accused of crimes related to this, the civil conflict. It was a big, big deal that made very many people unhappy because they saw these people leaving who had been terrorists. But the Good Friday Agreement was a, a landmark decision that brought peace to Ireland. The big fear is that the so-called backstop fails, there's a hard Brexit, and the necessity of having a border where there has not been a border since the Good Friday Agreement will create incentives for people who were very busy causing trouble before the Good Friday Agreement to again engage in terrorism and to destabilize Ireland in the name of Irish nationalism. We got by that in 1998, and this silly thing that's going on now endangers all that. And I think it's worth mentioning too, you can do this, is, is that why did Brexit happen? What was the spark for the actual referendum? Why did David Cameron risk it? What was going on? Well, it, it, it's interesting. Oh, I'm putting the microphone closer to my mouth. Um, essentially, David Cameron, according to Donald Tusk himself, the president of the European Council, was a victim of his own success. So if you remember the first time, the first election that David Cameron won, he had to form a, a coalition government with the Liberal Democrats. The Liberal Democrats are very pro-EU party. Going into his second election, his, the second time he ran for prime minister, he was looking at the political landscape, the polling, and the polling indicated that he would have to do something very similar. In the meantime, there was this fringe party called UKIP that was advocating for a referendum for the UK to leave the EU. It means the, the UK Independence Party. UK. Now, UKIP was pushing this idea. He wanted to keep them on board because he felt that the more of the hard right conservative members of his own party that bled out to UKIP, it would cost him the election. So to placate that fringe element at that point of the UK, he promised a referendum, thinking that according to the polls, he would have to form another coalition government with the Liberal Democrats. Election came around, he was a victim of own, his own success. He had enough numbers to not have to do that. And because he didn't have to bring the Lib Dems on board, all of a sudden, he had to abide by his campaign promises. He had fully planned, according again to Donald Tusk in a BBC documentary, he was fully planning to tell th those elements of his own party, look at, I can't give you this referendum because the Lib Dems won't, won't, won't allow me to do it. But because he didn't have that to lean on as a crutch, he had to stage this referendum. Now, the question, there are lots of questions as to why didn't he, why he set the referendum up the way that he did? A, a simple majority to, to 
to decide a very complex question, ignoring the fact that you know you you don't you could lose Scotland, which had just had a referendum of its own, which by a, a relatively narrow majority voted to remain inside the UK. So he knew what was at stake. He oversimplified and thought, well, he won this, the, the, the referendum in Scotland, he, he, he could win again. And uh, it cost him uh, the prime, his premiership, and, and it opened this Pandora's box of problems for the UK and for the EU. It just shows you how little things trying to solve an intra-party dispute can have big effects when things go wrong and you have no plan when you lose. It makes you wonder what political leaders are thinking sometimes. And that was sort of one of the shocking things to me, watching all of this unfold, the referendum campaign unfold from the other side of the English Channel. I was in Brussels at the time and speaking to British officials there in Brussels um, from the perm rep there and they were under instructions not to even think about what would happen if the UK voted to leave the EU. They couldn't even contemplate it. Not a single word on paper, no plan existed whatsoever. They were ordered to do that. So you can imagine what Ivan Rogers, the perm rep at the time, must have been thinking that morning when we all woke up at like 5 a.m. And, and, and saw that, th that this was actually happening, the panic that must have set in uh, to the rest of, uh, of the British officials and David Cameron's own government. They had absolutely no idea how to carry this out, which is probably part of the reason we saw David Cameron resign. So why do people, people being analysts and journalists, compare Brexit to the election of Donald Trump and the shock outcome that we saw in the US, which involved um, populism, it involved the kind of propaganda and disinformation that we hadn't seen before, we hadn't expected. What, what happened? Why did Brexit actually happen? What were the causes of the shock? Well, I think you have to also look at the Brexit vote in the context of what was going on in government policy at the time. David Cameron's government had implemented really extreme austerity uh, throughout the country. Govern budgets were being slashed, social services were being slashed uh, in the wake of the financial crisis. That has taken a toll throughout the country. If you go to Wales, for example, now, a poverty rate there is 25%. Uh, food banks are cropping up all over the place. Um, people were losing money. People w weren't as well off as they had been before. A lot of people see the Brexit vote, the decision to leave the EU, through the prism of a protest vote. Many people say that that is the reason why people went to the polls that day and voted in that way. Um, there are others, though, that, that really truly believe that the UK should be determining its own destiny, that the UK wants, uh, has lost its sovereignty, is beholden to Brussels, um, and is answerable to Brussels when they shouldn't be. There, there is a, a large chunk of the population, in fact, I would say it's growing, uh, that, that has that view because they're looking at the situation uh, in terms of um, over, an oversimplification. I, I remember one speech that David Cameron made in particular uh, on the steps of Downing Street when he was pleading with his own people not to do this. And he said, the sovereignty you crave is an illusion. The idea being that the UK outside of the EU, if not beholden to the EU's regulatory standards, would have to be beholden to the regulatory standards of, say, the US or any number of global powers that are calling the shots these days. But 
it's a simple narrative and people definitely bought into that. Add on top of that a, a healthy layer of a disinformation campaign. We all remember those famous buses promising 350 million to the NHS. So it created kind of this almost toxic stew of information, disinformation that led people on that day, and it was a rainy day, believe it or not, weather, weather was also a factor, it was pouring that day in large parts of the United Kingdom, which is also viewed to have suppressed turnout, um, also the decision to not allow young people to vote um, also affected the vote. All these things impacted the way things went, because remember, 52% voted that day to leave. That's, that's a very narrow margin, that's a, that's a flip of a coin. One other thing that's worth mentioning is, is that British citizens who lived outside of the UK in the EU, the people arguably with the highest stakes in the outcome, because they lose their right to live in the EU, were not allowed to vote in the referendum unless they had voted in a, an election in the UK within the last 10 years, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Which to me seems very strange. It was disenfranchising a group of the highest stakes in the outcome. I can't think of a, an election like that in the, the, in the recent past. So let's talk to Lydia, and Lydia will talk to us actually. L Lydia's expertise is in Poland and Hungary, which have been in the EU since May 2004. Um, but strangely, Poland and Hungary, uh, along with the Czech Republic and Slovakia and a few other countries, which have benefited greatly from trade agreements and from structural spending, have seen the rise of populist politicians which have begun to criticize Brussels as a source of limiting national sovereignty and putting down the aspirations of their various nations to express their own identity, for example, being subsumed by Brussels in one way or another. How did this happen? What's going on? And, what, and talk about the benefits first, if you can, and then what happened after. Okay, um, so I think, well, I mean, the prime benefit really uh, in 2004 were for the citizens of these countries to be able to move freely, to enjoy that freedom of movement that the European Union gives to you. So we're talking about people being able to move to a different country, to seek, seek better job opportunities, uh, you know, to go to uh, universities outside of their own countries. And I think that, you know, those two things, for example, certainly was one of the sort of two of the reasons why people were quite happy about joining the union at the time. Also, if you look at the governments, of course, and they came into a position where they, will, they were able to apply for specific structural funds that come from the EU cash register, essentially, and to be able to basically uh, invest in different type of infrastructural projects and make roads better in their countries and hospital facilities and other sort of public facilities. And so all of the, all of the Visegrad countries and other countries as well, Romania included, for example, they have benefited from these types of funds. And Poland and Hungary in particular, I think that the, both of them, I think Hungary is the largest net recipient actually of these particular funds. And so, you know, all of those things were good things. Then I think what happened, um, you know, you have to look at it from, you know, the financial crisis perspective, the fact that particularly in Hungary, um, the, the uh, governments that came into power after the fall of the um, 
of the Iron Curtain, uh, successively, you know, demonstrated that they were not capable of actually governing in, you know, in, in, in a good way. The, you know, there were always issues around corruption. And I think that left people really sort of disenchanted and disappointed with the promises of democracy. And that created a general mistrust uh, in people uh, in these countries. And again, particularly uh, in Hungary, which is the prime country that I cover. And that in and of itself, you know, creates a perfect storm in a particular situation, which then occurred in 2010 on the heels of the financial crises and of various scandals, political scandals uh, in Hungary at the time, uh, created this perfect sort of storm for the current prime minister and his government to come in and sort of seize that opportunity and seize power as they did at the time with a two-thirds majority which means that basically the ruling party since 2010, with the exception of a few months a couple of years ago, has essentially had the power to, enact, to adopt and enact, uh, enact any type of law of, of their preference, and that includes the Constitution as well. So at th this point, what we're seeing in Hungary is a very strange hybrid model of democracy sliding into some sort of authoritarian spiral uh, where you have a ruling party having grabbed power almost completely by now, but always within the, always within a legal framework in a way, uh, which has made our jobs as human rights activists extremely difficult in, uh, in Hungary in, in terms of being able to hold government officials and the government itself to, to account. So one of the prime things that I've been looking at for the past nine years is the rule of law decline. Now, rule of law, it's a, it's a very strange and abstract concept. And um, so I, what it actually means is it's quite simple, that it's law applies equally to everyone and that everyone should be able to be held accountable and particularly governments should be able to be held uh, to account for any type of power abuses that they commit. But when you have a situation where the government is actually in control of all of those institutions that are supposedly there to protect you as citizens. When they control them, then you have a problem with the principle of upholding the rule of law. And this is what we're seeing, and this is the model that we have seen also exported into other countries in this region. Uh, I'm thinking primarily of Poland, but we have seen um, you know, examples of this even here in Czech Republic and in Slovakia and certainly in Romania as well. So this is a very, um, you know, it's a disturbing development that we've been seeing in the past few years. And it kind of adds to this whole Brexit trauma where you have, you know, a concrete, uh, you know, UK concretely leaving the union, cre creating havoc inside the union. And sort of on the eastern side of the, of the continent, you see, you know, a couple of states actively working to undermine the European Union and the European Union institutions. So that's the parallel to Brexit. It's very different, but it's basically about undermining the role of the European Union to undermine the stability of the Union as well. Um, yeah. So how is this affecting the state of human rights where this kind of populist reaction is happening? Well, that, going back to the rule of law issue, I mean, concretely, it affects you know, you as citizens in the sense that you can't really rely on your courts anymore because they're packed with government loyalists. 
Uh, you can't rely on indep independent media in, in many of these countries because the media has been taken uh, over in various ways by governments and oligarchs close to the government, you know, business persons close to the government, uh, creating a very restrictive space for independent media to be able to work in these countries, meaning, of course, that you have difficulty accessing alternative information apart from the sort of the, the government propaganda. Uh, and this, uh, and also the journalists that do work there, for instance, they have difficulties accessing information that should, in fact, be public. They have to go to court for several years in order to get like basic budgetary related information that they're seeking in order to hold some government official uh, to account for corruption. So all of these elements are, are human rights related issues that actually have an effect on ordinary people. But if we go back to the first question you asked about what, what has happened, what I would also add, apart from the sort of the gradual undermining of rule of law in, uh, in these countries, I think one of the, one key factor that also happened was in 2015 with the refugee crisis, and that certainly sort of gave and enabled, particularly the Hungarian government, but also we, we saw that the other governments were following suit quite quickly, including Poland and Czech Republic and Slovakia, uh, gave them sort of a, a topic to sort of um, to use to justify a lot of these sort of rights abusing practices that they that they were engaging in and so they created the enemy of the migrant the refugee and built that whole populist narrative around migrants refugees those who supported them all of a sudden we had these like horrible campaigns uh, targeting George Soros the, uh, uh, the billionaire philanthropist who does a lot of, uh, who supports a lot of these sort of open society activities like trans, you know, societies in transition from uh, dictatorships to democracies. So he was made as one of the sort of the key culprits of all of this. And any organizations and any media that had any sort of critical view in terms of government's policies vis-a-vis -vis refugees and migrants uh, at the time were also sort of put in that box and labeled as traitors and, you know, foreign mercenaries and, and, and whatnot. And so I think that, that that is also an important element to, to raise here, how, that, how, they, how these governments use these sort of, uh, in many cases imaginary, really, uh, created narratives to, uh, to support their own domestic uh, policies and to sort of boost their own domestic support. So if the EU is a democratic club that required several years of reforming and improving democratic institutions before 2004, can't the EU do anything now to reverse what's happening or at least sanction governments? What's happening? They seem to be getting away with everything they're doing. So it's quite interesting because if we think back uh, to the creation of the EU, I think that those who created the EU didn't really envisage this type of scenario, that once you're in a democratic club, you're assumed to be a democratic member state, and, you know, and the way that you conduct your governance is based on the principle of rule of law where everybody can be held to account. So because that was the assumption, there really wasn't anything put in place in the treaties that directly dealt with a member state who all of a sudden turned, you know, anti-democratic. So once Hungary started this sort of 
illiberal model, as Prime Minister Orban uh, chooses to refer to it, the illiberal democracy, once you know, that sort of hit home at the EU level, they realized in Brussels that we really don't have the best tools to address this aside from, in a, in a way, a naming and shaming, calling out the Hungarian government for its practices, hoping in a way that they, they would change course. Now, the Hungarian government didn't change course. In fact, it just kept making things worse. And then they exported this particular uh, method to other countries. And I think it's interesting because there, there has been some legal action taken against Hungary and Poland uh, in the past few years, but it's been extremely targeted and extremely technical in many ways and not necessarily related to rule of law and fundamental rights as it's called within the European Union. Uh, and then when in Poland the PIS government came into power in 2015 and we saw sort of a sped up version of the Hungarian model, I think that's when we saw more action being taken by the EU. So there, you know, they launched a particular legal action proceeding against Poland, which is actually one of the first times that they have done so against the member states. It's what they commonly refer to as the Article 7 procedure, which is based on the rule of law. So basically what Article 7 says, that if there is a, a serious risk or threat to the rule of law in a member state, then the commission can go in and initiate legal action against that member state. It's a long procedure. Ultimately, it can lead to the revocation uh, of voting rights at the council level for, for the particular member state in question. Now, for various reasons within the European Union, that's probably not gonna happen, but it's, it's more of a sort of a statement, a sort of a um, you know, willingness of, on part of the EU to say that you know, this is as far as it goes, this is as far as you can go, and you know, the buck stops here. However, this, this process has not been initiated against Hungary by the Commission, which is essentially the, gov the, the government of the European Union. It has been against Hungary by the European Parliament, a different body within the European Union. They triggered uh, an Article 7 proceeding, which it can do if it has the, you know, enough votes in Parliament to do so and they had it last September, and so they also initiated this particular proceeding. Slightly different, it's very technical. Uh, it sounds the same, it is in many ways, but it's this technical sort of bit about, in, in terms of getting to where you wanna go with Hungary that makes the situation a little bit more complicated in the Hungarian case. But to, to sort of, to get to the point, to the question, they have done things, but a little bit too little and a little bit too late. I think that a lot more can be done. Uh, one, uh, one of the ideas on the table now, and certainly something that Human Rights Watch has been advocating for for years, is that you know, some governments simply don't listen to the sort of the naming and shaming and please enact or, or, or put your laws in line with EU law. Uh, this is certainly something that the Hungarian government is not particularly keen to do anything about and, and neither is the Polish one. But, um, you know, to, as in the beginning we said that one of the benefits for these countries were structural funds, you know, money essentially pouring in from other EU member states to support various types of infrastructural or other types of activities in these countries to pull the plug, to link that money to rule of law. And that's something that's on the table right now at the European Union level and we see more and more support from various member states to, to do so because what we're seeing, this sort of the, this 
gradual and, and, and steady decline in rule of law protection and human rights protection in these countries and the fact that this is spiraling outside of, of, of the region at this point and even you know, to countries like Brazil who come to Hungary to get tips on how to deal with the media. So I mean, at this point, I'm working with colleagues in Latin America in, you know, in other parts of the world because other world leaders come to Hungary to learn how can we best oppress our journalists because you seem to do a great thing. You know, Erdogan has to throw them into jail in Turkey, but you have a really good model here. Can we please learn from you? Why, why hasn't the EU pulled the plug on the funding? Why, why hasn't that been done already? It seems like a simple fix. I, th I think it goes back to that very fact that they really didn't envisage that any member state would go down this route. Like, if you're a democracy, you stay a democracy, you know, and democracies are based on the rule of law. And so now we have this weird situation where clearly you have some member states who are um, deviating from that path and you know to make any sort of changes treaty changes particularly you would have to have a unanimous vote on that and obviously uh, some of these member states will never agree to it hungary being one poland likely another but i could name another another good few who would probably be opposed to that uh, and also when it comes to the structural funds i mean people i, I know that a lot of you know, good lawyers are looking at options on how to uh, come up with like a fifth, like a four-fifth majority to at least link the, the, the funds because you have the budget, for instance, that you can also do something about that, you know, you sort of restrict the budget to countries like Hungary and Poland. That requires a unanimous decision. But with the funds, it's slightly different, but you still have to have that majority. And this is, you know, this is politics, you know, this is beyond protecting rights at this level. And you really need to uh, work hard, you know, amongst the ministers in order to convince other states to sign on to it. Because, you know, one day it's Hungary, the next day it's, it's, it's your country, you know. And so, but uh, there is a possibility, uh, but it will take time. And unfortunately, time, in my opinion, having lived in Hungary for 13 years almost, uh, and seeing these, these de appalling developments, uh, which will take decades, I would say, to undo, even if we had a change of government tomorrow. Uh, I think that, you know, if, they, if they're now with the new commission coming in and we have the Finnish presidency as well, who all are making this a key issue, like a key priority for the commission to take forward the possibilities to do something, to link the money to rule of law, I think this is something, you know, that is of you know, pivotal importance really for the future of the European Union because right now what the Hungarian Prime Minister is doing, he's doing his best to, you know, to create an, a, a deeper crack and a divide between particularly those countries that joined in 2004 and, and the rest. So if unanimity creates effective Im immunity or impunity, what's gonna happen? I mean, is there any way that, I mean, you can just get away with anything if everyone has to vote to censure you or to take away money. What can be done? Well, this is exactly it. And I think this is something that, for instance, the Hungarian government knows, and they play that card very well. Um, the interesting thing is that, you know, the EU has a huge support in Hungary. Like, most Hungarians are really in favor of the EU, and I think that goes for the rest of the Visegrad countries as well. This is a government-created narrative that Brussels is bad, and Brussels wants to overrun us, and they want to occupy us, and all sorts of, like, strange things that we hear often in propaganda media. Um, but in terms of, you know, what can be, I mean, the fact is that there's little we can do now. There are very little tools that we can use to come about those particular changes that we want to see, 
that would in effect benefit people you know to to stop the sort of the rights abusing policies that these uh, governments have you know chosen to sort of go after uh, in my opinion our hopes really lie to the you know with the money somehow that they make restrictions on the money and in, in which ways they flow in i mean recently there was a EU has this uh, anti-corruption body called Olaf, and Olaf made uh, an investigation into a couple of these... Czechs know about Olaf. Yeah. The prime ministers <laughs> had no. some problems with Olaf. Well, so, so, and so our prime minister in Hungary has also had problems, and you know, quite a number of governments have had problems with Olaf. I think the difference here is that uh, in Hungary, you know, these, these reports are supposed to be made public. And this is, you know, the, the, the Hungarian government just said that we're not going to make this report even public. And, and you, you shouldn't... How can they get away with that? Exactly. And because it happened very recently, this is also one of the things that we're sort of working on and seeing what the EU reaction is to this particular, again, a breach, really, of, you know, the, the responsibilities they have vis-a-vis -vis the European Union. I think the key is money cut the money, link it to rule of, you know, to obedience to rule of law and basic sort of EU values. And unless that happens, then you will just see sort of a restriction to that money. But it has to happen, that's, that's the point. So if political leaders are manipulating the e membership in the EU and the views toward Brussels, and people actually are very pro-EU, maybe not very, but the majority, um, do you see a chance of a Brexit-type referendum being proposed and actually being voted on? because politicians want to do that and they, they think that they can manipulate an outcome similar to what happened in Britain? And if so, where might it happen? Poland, Hungary, any other countries you can think of where populists are playing this kind of game? I mean, this is not something that I have heard a lot, you know, in terms of Hungarians wanting to uh, leave the union or the government even flagging such ideas. I think it's also because in Hungary we have a very pragmatic government as opposed to Poland, I would say. There is a slight difference there. I think the Polish government is more ideologically driven than the Hungarian government. I think whatever, you know, whatever theme that they can come up with that can sort of bolster their power, that's the sort of the theme of the day. So it's more of a pragmatic approach. And I think as long, again, going back to the money, as long as the money keeps trickling in, as long as they can get away, essentially, with, the, you know, these rights-abusing practices, they are not necessary, and, and, and money cups trickling in, because obviously that money, uh, going back to the Olaf report, will, you know, end up in someone's pocket. And so this is a really, really good little economic scheme that these guys are doing. Uh, so as long as that scheme is in place, there will be no sort of calls from the prime minister or his cabinet or other ministers to say that, uh, well, let's do a sort of a hungzit or something. And I don't really see that happening in Poland anytime soon either. It's interesting. I was I was speaking uh, just a couple of days ago to a senior EU official, and what he's sort of noticed is is that because Brexit has been so chaotic, because it has been such a mess, it's led to the downfall so far of two prime ministers and counting within the UK, and damaged the UK's economy. It's a remarkable deterrent uh, from populists and their messaging uh, to go in th that direction. We saw that play out in the parliamentary elections in March. Populist. Uh, populist leaders weren't advocating for the per se France to leave the European Union that that narrative had shifted to we need to change the EU from the inside so instead of breaking away it, it's 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 all about for populists becoming a, dis, a disruptive force getting that parliamentary majority chairing those committees and and changing the EU uh, from within
One interesting exception to that rhetorically is Mueller Zeman. You probably remember that Zeman, during his travels around the country, he's also a little bit like Donald Trump. He likes to keep the campaign going. He's said in speeches in the provinces that we should consider a referendum on the EU and maybe even NATO membership if that's what the people want, right? So what the people want, he'll just tell you what you want because he'll decide for you. This is what populists do. I, it's probably not going to happen. I did a big study on Zeman as a source of um, <clears throat> Eastern influence within NATO recently. And, you know, he's playing games. Um, it's unlikely, but the problem is, is that if you start a movement of people who believe this and they're your political supporters, you might end up indulging them and saying, yeah, we ought to think about this. And if the Czech Republic had an EU referendum, about 25% of the population here statistically is very pro-EU. A similar proportion is not very friendly toward the EU, and the rest is up for grabs. And that's how populists win referenda, and they win elections. They manipulate people in the middle who haven't made up their minds. It's like the undecided voter during an election. Not saying it's going to happen, but, you know, remember when Miller Zeman said in his inauguration speech, Nebudu Jadno Sfingo. Remember that? I won't be a Sphinx. Sfinga, sorry, Sfinga. Um, he's, this is a very active president who jumps around and does things that are very unpredictable. And he's even, he said one of them is that he's flirted with a, the idea of a referendum in public. Again, probably not going to happen, but, you know, that's what happens when you're not a Sfinga. So let's bring it, we have 18 minutes, so let's talk about some things that interest you and ask some questions to the panelists up here who know a lot about what's happened and why, the, why Britain is basically falling apart right now politically and Hungary's in trouble. So Jack Daniels, the Jack Daniels shirt right there, sorry. Hi, I have a question regarding something that hasn't been discussed yet, if it's okay. Of course, why okay. not? Well, yeah. How do you think Brexit influences the enlargement of the European Union? Because there have been talks with a couple of countries in the Western Balkans. So how do you think Brexit influences the enlargement? You both can answer that. That's relevant to both of what you do. In my sense, from um, having been in Brussels quite often and talking to people with that particular portfolio, my sense is that you know any sort of enlargement uh, with respect to the Western Balkans is put on halt. So as long as you don't have all hell breaking loose in Serbia or in Bosnia or elsewhere, um, they're quite happy to maintain whatever status quo there is which always makes my, diff my, my job quite difficult in this region. Uh, you know, whatever we come with to decision makers in terms of, you know, this is what we want the EU to put pressure on Serbia, you know, during the enlargement process or Bosnia, and we mention all sorts of things. And we just see and we just get the sense that there really is no appetite for this because people are so sort of embroiled in this whole Brexit thing that there simply is nobody's going to listen, nobody's like actually going to devote effort into this at this point. So we'll have to see actually what's going to happen post-Brexit if, you know, if that whole discussion will surface to the top again or, or, or whatever, or what's going to happen. And if you listen to the French President Emmanuel Macron during uh, the last EU summit in which they were having such a difficult time getting uh, their lineup together for the President of the Commission, President of the Council and the ECB, and what did he say? He blamed it on 
uh, he, he said, no more members of the club. We're not expanding. It's not going to happen. It's too difficult to make decisions now, as is. Why would we want more players in the mix with different agendas? And that was more driven by the fact that the EU right now, the EU's political landscape is fragmented much more so than it has been in the last five years. And I think EU leaders are seriously trying to figure out how to deal with that. Let me ask quickly, because I don't see a hand up, a scary Brexit question. Oh, there's a hand. Well, let me ask it anyway, uh, just because this is relevant to the news. People were making um, wild speculations about how medicine wouldn't be available in the UK if there was a, a, a hard Brexit, that the export regime, the trade regime with pharmaceutical companies would mean that that uh, British population wouldn't have access to the medicines they need. How could that possibly be in a modern world where people manufacture medicines domestically, among other things, but also, you know, trade just doesn't stop. Is it just going to stop like that? And people aren't going to be able to get what they need? Well, well the, an the short answer is yes. And, and, and in an event of a no-deal Brexit, which is why part of the UK's contingency planning is urging uh, pharmaceutical companies within the UK, urging hospitals to start stockpiling medicines, because once, once the UK falls off that cliff and becomes a third country, uh, the supply chains will be hugely disrupted. Now, the UK has said, as part of its no-deal planning, that it, it, it would allow goods in, but it won't. But but the the EU is not signing on to that plan. The EU wants its borders, wants to enforce the borders as a third country. And so, yeah, I mean that's that is something that will be impacted. Medicines, all sorts of goods. And, and in fact, in in, in in the event of a no-deal scenario, there are things that we can't even comprehend after, uh, effects of what will happen because it is the economy is an onion and everything is interlinked. So one part that gets stopped at the border will be, say, super important to be making X part that nobody thought of, and all of a sudden that business is gone in the event of a no-deal. Um, so as a prognosticator, <laughs> what do you what do you think is going to happen? What do I think is going to happen? I mean, look. Covering Brexit for the last three years, I, I think the number one thing that I've learned is expect the unexpected. Whatever you think will happen, won't happen. It'll be something completely out of left field that you never thought that was going to occur. So I think that anyone who says 100% they know what is going to happen, anyone who is feeling very comfortable and confident in themselves in making a prediction is probably wrong. Like life itself. All right, we have a gentleman in the orange uh, who had his hand up first, and the gentleman in the blue shirt after. Um, I have a question for uh, for Erin. In the in the beginning, you said that Theresa uh, gave the EU the advantage in the negotiation uh, position. Um, could you tell something about the position of Brussels in this negotiation, how and how it changed over time, like starting three years ago until now? and how it will maybe change even in the coming months? Well, I, I think that the EU had the advantage, hands down, in terms of this negotiation. It had time on its side. Um, the number one, the key, uh, I remember from my classes in university, I took a class on negotiation. The key to winning any negotiation is having the best alternative to a negotiated offer. And it's called a BATNA. The EU's BATNA is vastly better than the UK's BATNA, just by sheer numbers. So it had that on its side. The fact that the no-deal scenario is so much worse for the UK than it is for the EU. That could essentially compel 
the UK to do pretty much whatever uh, the EU wanted in terms of money, in terms of citizens' rights, and then finally, you know, the situation there in Northern Ireland. The EU also had the extreme advantage of being able to be transparent, right? All 27 had very similar interests, not very, the same interests. They wanted more money, they wanted their citizens protected, and they wanted one of their own to be protected as well. That was the Republic of Ireland, right? The UK was completely fragmented when it sat down at the negotiating table. Theresa May was unable to level with her own people the repercussions of Brexit. She had to make it look as though their wildest dreams would come true as a result of Brexit to keep her government together, to keep everyone on board. So she had to deal with a very opaque, uh, lack of transparent plan, right? She couldn't, she couldn't tell her people the truth, right? Or, or she'd lose her government and the DUP, the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, if they knew half of the stuff that was going on, would have failed a long time ago. So that was the hand she was dealt. Um, and, and in the end, when she had to reveal her cards, reveal her hand, here is the deal, everyone had a heart attack in the UK. Um, you know, that was... <laughs> and no medicine to take care of and, it. Well, and no medicine <laughs> to take care of it, apparently. We'll, we'll, have, to <laughs> we'll have to see. Um, so I, that, that is what gave uh, the EU the advantage. Now, we're reaching a point in time where we're going to, not we, Boris Johnson, the UK, is seriously going to test the EU's commitment to, to the Republic of Ireland uh, and to the situation in Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement. That really hasn't been truly tested because I don't think anyone in Brussels, and they correctly assessed this, thought that Theresa May would go for the no deal. They correctly figured that out because it's such a catastrophic outcome. But it's reaching a point with the next prime minister, likely Boris Johnson, that he politically potentially will have no choice. It'll be his political career and no deal, right? Probably both. So we'll see if the EU bends. Before we do the next question, can you briefly tell people about Boris Johnson as a politician and as a person? As a person. Uh, I can tell you Boris Johnson through the spectrum of, of the EU. Um, he's many things to many people, um, extremely charismatic. Um, he was one of the original Brexiteers. In fact, I remember the day in which he came out he, and said that he was supporting Brexit. Um, so he's seen as a true believer, whether or not he is a true believer, whether or not he actually believes Brexit is the best thing for the United Kingdom. Well, that's up for debate, but um, he's seen through that prism by Brexiteers. He's seen as the one man who can carry this out, who can lead the UK to freedom in their view. Um, from the EU's perspective, however, he's very unreliable. He, he can't be counted on. He doesn't tell the truth. You know, one senior EU official I was talking to as I, I mentioned the same EU official just a couple of days ago, just to get the sense of what the perception is. And when he was foreign minister, he, he really didn't bother forming relationships with other EU leaders, other ministers. He doesn't have those relationships. So the only way they can see th him is through the prism of British media. And, and what they see is someone who's not trustworthy. Contrast that to Theresa May. They thought Theresa May was actually extremely trustworthy. Her problem was that she didn't have the numbers to get her deal through. So Boris Johnson is a complete unknown. He's making a lot of campaign promises um, that essentially his campaign promises are not achievable. He can't, you can't achieve half of what he's promising the UK people. So Brussels sees this, Brussels knows this. 
will the real Boris Johnson please stand up? And they're hoping that he stands up rather quickly um, and, and, and it comes forward with a, a feasible plan to take the UK forward. But I, the, Theresa May's numbers are Boris Johnson's numbers. So it doesn't look, um, it doesn't look good, basically. Also, Boris Johnson is about to get selected as the next prime minister by a vote through the Royal Post. It's a, a mail vote, um, M-A-I-L vote, where 30,000 people in the UK who are conservative party members who tend to be old and tend to be conservative are selecting the person who's going to lead the country. Not people within the party who are party activists and party elites who, for example, selected John Major when Margaret Thatcher was thrown out of power. Uh, this is uh, basically party radicals who are in the villages who are going to put a letter in a post box are literally determining who the next prime minister of Britain is. And nothing like this has ever and happened. And that has had an impact on the leadership race in a profound way. You saw Jeremy Hunt, who, who Boris is currently uh, running against. He's the current foreign secretary. He was seen all along as a very moderate voice. Now you hear him saying that uh, a no deal is perfectly well government policy. It's pushed both of them to extremes, right, to try and get across the lines, to try and get a claim on Downing Street. So I think that is why Brussels is watching and waiting to see, okay, campaign rhetoric is one thing, what is their actual policy? Well, Boris Johnson won't say what his policy is because he doesn't like to answer difficult questions, and he gets away with it, a little bit like Donald Trump. Uh, you've probably seen pictures of him flying on a zip line with a funny helmet on around the time of the London Olympics, I think that was. He's a performer, and his former boss said that he's a bit of a clown who likes to, he'll say whatever the room in front of him wants to hear. I think I'm doing the same thing right now, but uh, no zip line. But he, he's the kind of person who is a political performer that he's not a serious politician who understands the public interest, that he understands his personal interest. And a lot of people draw the parallel with Donald Trump. And it's a, a very interesting thing. The problem is, is that he's actually about to become the chief executive of the United Kingdom, United Kingdom Incorporated, which is a very uh, odd thought. So the gentleman in the blue shirt who's holding the microphone. Yes, please. Um, I'm a sales guy, and when Donald Trump ran for president, I kind of predict, predicted that he's going to win, not because I'm very smart, just the sales approach that he had. And I'm kind of disappointed since by the political elite and the opposition, especially in the United States, that they haven't been able to come up with anything that talks to the blue-collar guy who actually you know, went out and voted for Trump because Trump somehow found a way to approach these people. And we're talking about a billionaire who suddenly somehow, with his sales approach, found a way to talk to normal people in Michigan, Detroit, who didn't have a job, or in Wales, maybe Boris Johnson maybe got some votes there, where, where people feel that they are not being listened to. So I'm, I'm sort of disappointed by the, 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 the current political elite and, uh, and opposition that they have not in the past years been able to come up with something that is, apart from calling these guys populist, is actually an agenda that approaches the same people that these guys are actually talking to. Uh, that's one, that's my point, just. And uh, one question, do you believe that Boris Johnson, Donald Trump uh, deal can happen if Brexit happens and if Johnson happens for the UK? Because Trump has been talking about that. When you say a deal, do you mean a trade deal, a bilateral yes, trade yes, deal? Yes, yes, uh, economical, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, that is, um, 
I, I know that is the Brexiteer vision. So the Brexiteer vision in all of this, how they see Brexit ultimately benefiting the United Kingdom is that the UK is somehow able to sever all ties uh, from any sort of customs union, any sort of trade relationship with the EU that would preclude the UK from signing other trade deals and then strike deals with the United States, with India, with China uh, that are in the interests of the UK and those deals would be vastly better than anything the EU could ever negotiate and, and they wouldn't have to deal with Brussels whatsoever. Um, and, and the US, Donald Trump, for his part, has been largely uh, encouraging of that, encouraging of um, the Brexit process as well. I, I think the, the episode with Kim Derrick, the British ambassador uh, to the United States, is an, interesting, uh, is an interesting sort of illustration of the state of the special relationship. Uh, the fact that uh, confidential cables that Kim Derrick wrote um, that were highly critical of the President of the United States um, to London were leaked at an opportune time. Um, and that led to his ultimate resignation. Boris Johnson notably in, in his debate with Jeremy Hunt refusing to back Kim Derrick and that was the reason uh, Ambassador Derrick said that he is, he's going to be resigning. It's an interesting chapter and that was seen largely due, the view in, in, in the UK, although not proven, is that Derrick was set up because Brexiteers want an ambassador in the United States that represents their interests, that's pro-Trump, that's pro-Brexit, that will make sure that trade deal becomes reality. Um, whether or not the U.S., I, I think it's a case of be careful what you wish for, because the U.S. has a much larger economy than the U.K. and will have much more weight in the negotiations. They're batting us better. The U.K. will be relying on that U.S. trade deal should Brexit actually happen and the U.K. get itself to a position where it can actually form trade deals with other countries, which frankly is in doubt because right now what would be required for that to happen is a no deal, right? And a no deal in and of itself is, 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 is a disaster and it's not an end state. So, you, the, so the, the UK needs to figure out its relationship with Brussels first. About why the opposition Democratic Party politicians haven't addressed the problems of the working class um, you know, members of which were manipulated by Donald Trump into voting for him. That's a great question. And, uh, you know, it's being answered slowly but surely during this season of the presidential primary. People are trying to figure out what to say, when to say it, and where to say it right now. Because they're, they're they, you know, everyone is being tactical and strategic. And they, they're even starting to attack each other, which they didn't want to do, especially people who are Senate colleagues. Imagine being in the Senate and you're friends with someone, you vote together and you meet together and you suddenly, oh, you're, you know, they're, they're criticizing you. It, you have to decide to do that. You have to go all in and it's difficult for people to do that. But having said that, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are two people who very much are, you know, they're, they, people call them democratic socialists, but Americans don't really use the language that they mean. They're, they're social democrats. If they were both European politicians, they would be members of the SPD and the Bundestag, not to be confused with Tommy Okamoro's SPD, for God's sake, <laughs> please. But they would, be, they would be, you know, left of center, maybe moderate left members of the Bundestag. These people are Northern European, so Central European social democrats who believe in state-sponsored healthcare, who believe in universal education. They believe in the institutions that exist in the Czech Republic. They don't want socialism, but what happens is that Americans use the word socialism in a way, Americans of the center and the left, left center and the, maybe the, what we consider the real left, which here is kind of the left, 
They use the word socialism in a way that allows people on the right to define them as people who hate the free market, who are un-American, and who are embracing uh, a war against private property and capitalism. And that's one reason why Elizabeth Warren said, I'm a capitalist. Because people were asking people in interviews, journalists were asking presidential candidates in interviews, do you believe in capitalism? Are you a capitalist? She went out of her way to say, yes, I am. And one of the, the candidates who's no longer relevant, John Hickenlooper, he's from Colorado, he owns a bunch of breweries. He's a business owner. He hesitated when someone asked him if he's a capitalist. Well, of course he's a capitalist, but he didn't know what to say because he thought he was going to you know, torpedo his chances of winning. Elizabeth Warren, who's a professor of law at Harvard University and a senator, who really is a social democrat, says, you know, I believe in capitalism. I believe in the free market, but I believe in regulated markets, right? This is what exists in Central Europe. This is Germany. This is the Czech Republic. This is Sweden. This is Denmark. And these people need to get out there and make it clear this is what we believe in, and we're going to define ourselves. We're not going to let Donald Trump and cynical members of the Senate on the right from the Republican Party define us, and also Fox News, frankly, the, it's, which is effectively state-owned media in the U.S., when the Republicans are in power. Very little you know, honest debate on that network, to be frank. Um, and avoiding reporting stories that are unflattering to Donald Trump. Occasionally, they, they do have good journalists, but they get, you know, their editorial line tends to channel them in one direction. Anyway, w keep watching Democratic candidates. Keep listening to what they're saying. And the people who are defining the message that's going to appeal to the people who voted for Donald Trump so far are Bernie Sanders, who I don't think is electable to that many people, um, and Elizabeth Warren, fundamentally. Joe Biden is now, you know, kind of the front runner just by default because he's, he was vice president. He's got a long history of being a politician. But Biden also may turn out not to be as electable. I hate that word electable, but people might not think of him as a possible candidate to be Donald Trump as time goes on and his weaknesses are revealed vis-a-vis -vis other candidates who are now looking actually pretty good, like Camilla, Kamala Harris from California in the first debate. People were talking about her as being this surprise person who stood up to Joe Biden and this type of thing. We don't really know who's going to win, and it would be silly to pretend you really know who's going to win. But the messaging, the answer to your question is there are people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren who are doing that, and there are other candidates who are going to begin to copy them as this begins to show statistically that voters are now, uh, you know, they're uh, amenable to leaving the Donald Trump camp and voting for someone else. Were you going to say something? Uh, I was just saying, to your point, in the case of the United Kingdom, the opposition is certainly feeding into the general political paralysis there because conservatives who probably would not be voting or not be leaning or supportive of their government at this point are so terrified of Jeremy Corbyn, that they're clinging on to the conservatives because the worst possible outcome for them would be a Corbyn government. Uh, Corbyn um, is, is largely seen as anti-Semitic, uh, anti uh, seen as um, Marxist as well by, by many. So people are in the UK, in the, within the Tory party, that probably would have voted for someone who would be perceived as more mo moderate uh, Labour candidate are, won't go that way. Um, it was I interesting. There, there was a, a YouGov poll of conservative members, members of the Conservative Party, about what is their greatest fear, what would they rather have, and they wanted to see Brexit happen essentially at all costs. When they had to choose between Brexit and their economy, 
economy crashing, they, they chose Brexit. Um, the one, the, uh, they wouldn't mind seeing Scotland leave they, if that meant that they could have Brexit, right? The, the one scenario that they would be willing to sacrifice Brexit in order to avoid was a Jeremy Corbyn government. So what you're seeing there is almost this polarization of, of views. And what we're seeing in terms of the political landscape in the UK is things, there is no center ground. You're either Remain or you're a Brexiteer. There's no in between. And that's a huge part of the problem. There's no figure there that's standing for the middle ground at this point. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Lydia. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, everyone, for coming. We went over by a couple minutes. Sorry about that.